Welcome to the World of Intelligence, a podcast for you to discover the latest analysis of global military and security trends within the open source defense intelligence community. Now on to the episode. Hello and welcome. My name is Hugh Williams. I'm head of EMEA News here at Jane's. And uh, today I have the pleasure of introducing uh, our webinar. And uh, we're going to try and show you uh, how the events have unfolded over the last week or so in, in Ukraine and provide some insight and analysis. To do this, I'm joined today by Tom Bullock, our senior OSINT analyst, James Rands, C4ISR manager, and Emil Kotlaski, senior analyst. Now, Tom, you've been covering and, and following the, the events uh, over the last week in, in quite some detail and the build-up over the last couple of months. Can you provide us with a bit of an overview of, of the last week and, and what's happened? Sure. So Russian military intervention began in Ukraine in the early hours of Thursday the 24th with what appears to be a mix of air and cruise missile strikes against strategic Ukrainian targets, so that's things like airfields, radar sites, air defense sites, ammunition storage depots, and a naval base in the Black Sea. Um, the efficacy of these strikes is mixed. Um, doesn't appear that Russia managed to totally eradicate things like Ukraine's naval forces, uh, air forces, sorry, or its air defense network. Um, sometimes it appears they've hit redundant radar sites, for example, or aircraft that were in storage. Uh, the strikes didn't go on for as long as we expected either. Almost immediately after the strikes were completed, as the sun was coming up, Russian special forces began attacking border checkpoints uh, in the north from Belarus and Russia, northeast from Belgorod and Russia, and then south from Crimea. Uh, Russian successes were fairly high on the first day. Um, Russian forces managed to push with the Ukrainians caught off balance to get into the edges of cities such as Chernigov, Sumy and Kharkiv in the north, and then in the south, in Crimea, coming from Crimea, sorry, they managed to secure a crossing over the Dnepr River, which they capitalized on sort of flooding additional brigades over the river and then managing to sort of almost encircle Kherson on the first day. Uh, since then, um, things have slowed down a lot. Russian fighting has been very bogged down uh, around the cities in the north. Uh, Russian forces also entered from Belarus around Chernobyl, heading towards Kiev from the northwest. Uh, again, these areas are bogged down, um, lots of heavy fighting, lots of losing of equipment. Uh, Russian forces, only real successes since the main breaks on day one have been to capitulate Kherson, which happened on the 3rd of March, uh, sorry, on the evening of the 2nd of March, and then to effectively encircle Mariupol on the Black Sea coast as well. Uh, Russian forces seem to have been plagued by a variety of issues as they've advanced from troop morale to logistics, which is slowing them down and are resulting in uh, equipment being abandoned and some fairly significant losses of new and modern equipment. Great, thanks, Tom. Um, Amel, perhaps you can you can um, address how how this has kind of um, played out compared to what we would have expected in in the doctrine. I think we would expect probably a slower advance, a more, more methodological advance throughout Ukraine, uh, based on sort of Russian doctrine of favoring, you know, mass artillery fires to cover, uh, essentially in advance of their mobile elements, which was the you know the battalion tactical groups. That's the sort of Russian army's basic maneuver, maneuver element. Um, 
Instead, the Russians seem to have try and capitalize on sort of these sort of surprise attack going very fast, going quite far into Ukrainian territory, and potentially try and capture key locations or key strategic um, targets very quickly and very early on, um, potentially within the first 24 and 48 hours. And as Tom said, they actually got close to um, you know a number of a number of strategic um, targets. However, they made sort of the classic mistake of going perhaps too far and too fast, which left um, a lot of the elements ahead of the main forces, ahead of the logistics, and oftentimes what appeared to be even on the first day without any proper artillery support, which is unusual for the Russians, uh, which gave the Ukrainian army room to maneuver. They moved down fairly predictable avenues of, 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 you know, of attack, sticking mainly to main service roads. The Ukrainians knew where they were likely going to be coming from and allowing Ukrainians to stage a number of fairly close-range ambushes uh, against uh, sort of you know unsupported Russian armor uh, or infantry without artillery support or proper ISR support, things that Ukrainians, in theory, should not have been able to do at the level of they man- they have managed to do so, had the Russians stuck with their doctrine. But the other side of the coin of that is the Russians would have been a lot slower. Uh, had they applied that method. Now, it seems that it hasn't quite worked out. We saw, you know, again, um, heliborne operations in near Kiev, for example, where um, it was quite clear that the idea of capturing uh, the Gostomol airport to potentially either link up with the ground element or provide a landing area for, for further uh, airborne um, units to be delivered at, at that airport and put pressure on the capital within day one, it sort of makes sense in a certain way. But, uh, of course... What happened almost predictably is without any form of direct support, lightly armed, um, you know, paratroopers delivered by helicopter were, you know, quickly swept off the airport by by light mechanized and, and by Ukrainian light mechanized forces and uh, and special and apparently special forces as well uh, reinforcement. Um, so it was a gamble in the early days. It doesn't seem to have paid off. Uh, in some cases, they probably almost got there, but not quite enough. Um, and perhaps they also underestimated the level of Ukrainian resistance, their logistics seemed, would appear, and then James is going to go further into that, but it would appear to be sort of dimensioned around the idea of a quick operation, which means that as things dragged on, they found themselves short of you know food, water, uh, fuel, ammunition, potentially as well for, for their artillery units, and therefore are having to basically resupply them in a way they perhaps didn't anticipate. So James, yeah, perhaps you can touch on some of the problems they've had, uh, notably around logistics. Yeah, um, but I think the, the, the issue starts with some of their planning assumptions. I think to some degree they believe their own hype. Um, so particularly um, the VDV, the paratroopers were assumed to be, I think, far more competent and capable than they actually were um, when they landed at the airfield. Uh, what we understand was supposed to then happen was that um, they, the heliborne troops would seize the airhead and then... Um, Paratroopers actually dropping by parachute would reinforce them in large numbers so that counterattack wasn't possible. And it looks like um, they couldn't actually coordinate between the Army and Air Force to actually get pulled that up together um, correctly. Uh, and the, the VDV were not quite the supermen that they were assumed to be. Um, they had uh, the Ukrainian nine infantry were able to, to repulse um, this elite formation. Um, I think it's fair to say that the, the Russians had seriously underestimated the capabilities of the Ukrainian armed forces. Um, however, 
sheer mass and, and uh, being the attacker, they get to choose where they attack, whereas the defender has to spread themselves across everywhere where there might be um, access. Uh, so the Russians ought to have been able to overwhelm them um, in detail where they chose the fight. Um, I think one of the biggest failures was that they had assumed uh, that the civilian population would either be welcoming in some cases or at least acquiesce. Uh, quite clearly, we've not seen that happen. Um, there's been fierce resistance from um, poorly armed civilians. Uh, a wide distribution of there's 18,000 rifles distributed in the in the first couple of days. I think in Kiev alone, um, and I'm told 80,000 Ukrainian diaspora have come back home to fight. So the, the spirit of the defenders is much much greater than the Russians anticipated. Um, and that, those factors really meant that the, this rather grandiose plan for a coup de main with, we think, amphibious landings in the south, although that's still very, um, uh, very hazy. So it looks like there are indicators of some small amphibious landings to help capture uh, Berdyansk, which is a town between Crimea and Mariupol. Um, we picked up video footage showing Russian BTRs in the configuration that indicates they've been used for amphibious landings recently. But not in vast numbers. Yeah. So is this resistance, unexpected resistance on the Russians, if the perception of what would happen has led to the issues with logistics and morale? Is that what? That's yeah. Come from? Are they overstretched themselves? Yeah. So I think they, they they had an in. It looks like they had an idea that they would win this fight within 24 to 48 hours with those elite forces and columns moving very quickly to seize probably to drive straight into the centre of the city, seize the centre of the city, arrest government officials, and then declare success, raise the uh, raise the Russian flag over the town. Uh, and then the bulk of the forces, if they were required at all, could just roll in in slower time, reinforce, disarm um, Ukrainian army units, um, or go back to barracks. It doesn't look like the Russians had actually planned for the bulk of their forces to actually be engaged in a really active fight. So we've seen a video of ration packs that are seven years out of date. Uh, we've had plenty of accounts of vehicles breaking down, lack of fuel, lack of water. Uh, the, the out of date rations are one issue, but not being, it's a bigger issue to then not be resupplied at all, um, you know, seven days into the op. Uh, into the op. We've seen a video of uh, Russian troops looting supermarkets, and yes, they're, they're stealing fancy goods and money, but most of what they're taking is food, um, which yeah, indicates that there is a real problem there. Yeah. Um, lack, of, lack of night fighting capabilities is slowing them down at night, it means they can't stage major ops. Um, the, Russian, the Ukrainians don't have great night fighting capability as well, but their defenders, that it gives them time to regroup, whereas the Ukraine, the Russians tend to have to pause. Um, Night, so yeah, it's giving them a little bit more advantage than that. And it seems quite telling that the logistical issues are appearing on all fronts as opposed to just one, which means it's not just one area that's getting bogged down or traffic jams. Um, like you have fuel shortages on the northeast, and then I was just looking at some images today which show like an advanced reconnaissance force around the town basically you had to abandon four BMPs because they ran out of fuel. It's, it's also the, the comms front. Uh, we know that they're communicating in clear, so not encrypted. Um, we know that there are some Russian units that are using um, civilian radios that they've bought per, privately. Um, but it's not just that they didn't have adequate, equip, adequate kit, sorry, 
it's that they really haven't planned for this operation. So the crypto hadn't been distributed by the looks of it to everyone who's going to need it. Uh, and it all smacks of the assumption that those that first uh, strike would actually just cut the head off the snake and, and the rest of it would be uh, would be easy. Um, and I think that's been compounded by their reaction to the initial failure, which seemed to be, you know, plan A is this superbly manoeuvrist approach, which had it worked, would have been in history books for many centuries to come. Um, and then that was just reinforce that failure by throwing everything across the border without any really clear plan of what they were going to do with it. Um, I suspect that at this point in time, one of the problems for that big convoy to the north is that as they figure out what Plan C is, a lot of the kit and equipment may be, may be in entirely the wrong part of the column. Um, it wouldn't surprise me if engineering and artillery assets were way back and needed to be brought forward. Um, and with the traffic jam that big, that could actually take days. It's a slight segue from that. Um, you know, there's lots talked about Russian EW capabilities, communications, jamming, that kind of thing. Are we seeing that played out, or is that something that's, that's not being witnessed yet we, on either side? I think there's an assumption that we would see a lot more uh, localized sort of GSM uh, jamming or disrupt, or at least degrade, degrading. I think the word jamming is often used overly to, to think that basically they can shut down every single signal coming in and out of a particular area, whereas in reality it's a lot more complicated and you're more degrading the sort of the ability for, for to have. You know, coherent signals and constant signals, so you're forcing the enemy to slow down in a, in a way. But we are certainly not seeing that, and clearly if they're using CV radios, there's a fear of jamming themselves or disrupting their own communications, which is a huge issue. Um, it does look like there is some very localised jamming around certain towns, so lots of reports, hard to discern what is just caused by other, other elements of the war, but there are consistent reports in towns that Russians are attacking or local to that internet's going down, cell phone services being cut off temporarily and then coming back, which could be caused by jamming as well. Yeah, and that makes that makes certain amount of sense. Is, is it's a lot harder to jam or at least significant degrade signals in a particular area when things are moving so quickly. Once the Russians take and seize territory, they can actually start targeting ground stations, etc., which you know aren't going anywhere, and therefore they have more time to locate assets to that. Um, but certainly, you know. Plenty, plenty of Ukrainian civilians have been have been having no problem using their cell phones to yeah. to take pictures, live stream stuff without any yeah. seeming issue. Yeah. And the interesting thing is the equipment is there, but it just doesn't seem like it's being used on a wide scale. Yeah. Like we've seen yeah. the electronic warfare equipment go over the border and pretty much every front, but it yeah. just doesn't. It's being used. But actually, that's kind of a it's kind of a highlights as well a wider trend of a lot of especially specialist equipment is there the air defense systems are there uh the, you know the ew systems are there and then they're not seemingly being deployed or being caught out uh, whilst on the move or, or not being actively deployed you know a number of videos that the have released of you know book uh yeah book systems being targeted by the very drones they're meant to they're meant to shoot down um you know ukraine you know ukraine civilians capturing tor m2s which is the allegedly more the cream of the crop of, of Russian air defense systems being abandoned on the side of the road and, you know, being seemingly either were abandoned because of lack of fuel or caught out of position and the crews fled because they were fear, fear, the fear of getting killed. So clearly stuff isn't in the right place at the right time. And Ukrainians are really capitalizing on that to, as much as they can. 
how much of this is the is the challenge of uh, the geography and the environment they're operating in? I think are they moving a lot quicker in the south because of the, the kind of the land down there versus what what the situation is in the north? What's the kind of? It's definitely possible. The weather's significantly worse in the north. There's a lot more snow and a lot colder. So it does appear that the Russians are being forced to stick to the roads and that is sort of causing those traffic jams. It's also causing them to have to split up their BTGs into smaller elements so they can advance in uh, simulus simultaneously along roads, which means that you might have your tank unit advancing down one road with mechanised infantry advancing down another and they're unable to support each other leading mm. to the sort of ambushes that Anne mentioned. Yeah. Yeah. And it's predictable. Uh, yeah. So it's a predictable avenue of, uh, of entry. I mean, in theory, Ukraine is perfect mechanized warfare country. It's one of the flattest areas in Europe. And partly why Russia Russia has always feared invasion from, for, from the West is because there isn't much geography to stop a natural invader on, on, on Russia's uh, western flank, which, which has always been Ukraine and the plains of the Prokhorovka and that extend into, into Russia. Um, obviously, it's not always that simple, but um, theoretically, it should have, you know, the, the geography itself should have enabled quite easily. The South is a bit different because it involves potentially amphibious warfare, mm. uh, which has its own set of challenges. But certainly the land operation should have been in, in Russia's favor in terms of getting masses of armor through. Um, but they chose to to go very fast, they should, which means they, as Tom said, prioritized MSRs. But if you're going to do that and avoid traffic jams, you've got to split up your forces, which means they can't support each other and therefore it defeats the point of a combined arms unit operating as one, which is what they train for and they, they're equipped for. Um, we talked about the land campaign mostly here. What about the, the kind of air the air battle? I mean, we're not seeing lots of videos of, of aircraft in operation or airstrikes. And have they achieved any kind of air superiority that you'd think they would, the Russians? So... It doesn't appear that the Russians have managed to achieve total air superiority. Like they seem to be slightly reticent to deploy their aircraft. Um, it's not to say they're not doing. Uh, there's a helicopter base in southeastern Belarus, which has been used to target things in Kiev and sort of sporadic raids over the border in west eastern Kiev and then into Chernigov. But yeah, you're not seeing sorties of S20, Su-25s flying in support of mechanized infantry attacking targets. Like those flights appear to be fairly rare, but there are indicators that they are picking up. So in the last two days, the sightings of aircraft have started to increase across the front again, which means either the Russians are starting to feel more confident deploying their air force, or they're throwing caution to the wind a bit with it. What about the Ukrainian tactics? And we've talked a lot about Russia, Russia's kind of approach to things here. Um, is this what we would have expected, or what's the kind of? Well, they, they've had eight years um, since the, the original Crimean op um, to get used to fight and plan and prepare to fighting the Russians. They've become very, very good at trench warfare because they've got trenches all along that that border. Um, what they've also done is buy a lot of light armored wheeled vehicles. Um, they and not necessarily super super new kit. Um, they've got Humvees. They've even got the old British Saxons, which were pretty archaic when I was a platoon commander, but they like them because they can move a lot of um, light infantry around so they can reinforce the line and they can move into depth. Now, they wouldn't fight from those vehicles because that would be suicidally stupid, but they can get close to um, the enemy, um, move in, 
and carry out the attacks. And, and that seems to be what they're doing. And I think what I mean, I mean, was saying earlier about how they were able to pick out these small packets of Russian um, troops. They're definitely safe, you know, in places, I think, where they are concentration forces, they tend to suffer a lot at the hands of the Russians because in the straight-on-straight fight, they often had either similar equipment to the Russians or perhaps slightly older versions, but Russians tend to have the mass where it counts. But when they are dispersing, which is probably what they trained for because of the lessons of 2014, what happens when you know the entire battalion is, is caught out by artillery in the open, not moving for a long time, you know, they, they learned that lesson in a very, very painful way. So presumably, Ukrainians have been planning on on, on having dispersed operations. Uh, and again, also the fact that they have to split their forces because they, don't, they wouldn't have known exactly where the Russians would have hit them at which time. So the Russians, you know, they are the attackers. They, they in many ways dictate the tempo. Um, but but also, it's also a little bit more difficult to judge how the Ukrainian, how well the Ukrainians are doing because it's a segue into. Sort of like the info, sort of the info war that's going on at the same time. We're getting we're getting a lot of of, of, of sources that you know quite highlight the failures of the Russians, but we're getting a lot of less of that about you know Ukrainians how they're fighting, how that what their dispositions are. Their upset is a lot better, uh, and I think Tom can can go into that a little bit yeah. um, in terms yeah. of, in terms of open source of what we're getting. Yeah, I think there's definitely an availability bias that's influencing all open source assessments. There's not really. A lot you can do apart from caveat your assessments with that, but it's not so. There's sort of this facade that the Ukrainians aren't taking the same level of losses as the Russians, and in quite a few places it looks like they're taking equal or more losses than the Russians. It's just the fronts aren't moving as much. So there are examples of sort of videos, pieces of propaganda published by the Ukrainian Ministry of Defense, which show a single destroyed Russian BNP surrounded by dead Russian soldiers. But the long version of that footage or additional footage we've gathered shows sort of five Ks of abandoned Ukrainian and destroyed vehicles behind that single BNP. And that really, I think, is the side of it we're not seeing. And so it's very difficult to make an accurate assessment on particularly how long the Ukrainians will be able to sustain this level of fighting for and how they're actually doing. So we saw, you know, early on, the Ukrainian government put, put a call out for, you know, please post imagery and videos of Ukraine, uh, sort of Russian activity, um, you know, on they've social actually, media. They've changed tact with that now. Okay. So now their call is don't post it of the Russians, send it to, they have set up like Telegram bots. Yeah. So you send it to these Telegram bots to stop the Russians from being able to counter it and move their forces out of these areas. So, so how useful would that kind of citizen ISR be to... I imagine it'd be immensely useful for yeah. the Ukrainians. Um, if I mean, we're seeing it with the open source collection as well. Like <laughs> Ukrainian civilians are making it very easy to track Russian movements because they're not. When we track Russian movements in Russia, um, people are a bit coy about it. They might not necessarily tell you where this particular thing they filmed happened, and then you have to spend hours diving around trying to find exactly where it came from. But the Ukrainians are quite happy to tell you. Um, Yes, it rumbled through my town today, which is here, and another 70 tanks followed on afterwards, that sort of thing. So I think for the Ukrainians, it's a real powerful tool. You just need to process it. Yeah. Uh, presumably, they're getting a huge amount of, of information, I think, you know. Yeah, I mean, there must be thousands of videos yeah. being taken and published every day. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's a panopticon paradox, I think it's called. It is, yeah. You yeah. see everything, you see nothing. Um, yeah, yeah. The other tricky bit is the... Uh, what, they, what the Brits would call the census user link. Um, so 
you have your sensor wherever that is, um, a Ukrainian um, householder looking out of their window and filming it on their phone, or whether it's the most high-tech um, radar that you've got in the world, it still needs to get that message about what the enemy is and where it is and, you know, quickly to someone that can do something about it. Uh, this is the question that everyone's been asking for the last couple of days is, you know, there's a 40-mile convoy. Why are the Ukrainians not doing anything about it? Well, the Ukrainians are doing something. They are attacking it. But um, it's not helpful to know that there's an enemy force there yeah. unless you've got some asset that can actually go and do something about it. I think in, the, in that case, I think it's more of a... Thing, uh, a demonstration of the lack of means that the Ukraine has to actually capitalize on on such mm. a such an you know an incredible target. Yeah. Um, in in you know had had the Ukrainians have sort of the air power that you know the West would have, it would have been a bit suicidal for the Russians to pull something like that. But either by happenstance or by knowingly knowing you know that the Ukrainians can't do much about it, they've sort of mm. let this thing happen. I don't know about the dispositions of the air cover this convoy has. Presumably the Russians have taken some precautions in terms of providing some kind of air defense for, for, for this mm. convoy, knowing it's going to be a huge target for, for you know, TB2s or, yeah, or, yeah. or even Russian, you know, or Ukrainian, you know, frontline aviation or even not much they can do about artillery, but Ukrainians don't have a ton of that. Yeah, I think given the risk posed by from the Byron parts, they yeah. must be covering that convoy yeah. with some level of air defense. It's got to be, yeah, so otherwise I think it would have been. And it's been static enough for, for the AD units to actually catch up and start deploying. Um, which you know we, we say with the, often you know with AD units being being caught out of position, mm -hmm. yeah. classic cases of maneuver warfare. You outrun you outrun your artillery, you outrun yeah. your air cover, you outrun your your air defence. Um, by slowing things down, the Russians are now being able to fight again as, as you know as combined co combined arms groups again, which is what you know they train for. And it's what it will favour you know what will favour them. This one. There's one thing that plays on my mind about the Bayer Actor. I know we were trying to work out how many um, of units the um, Ukrainians had, and I think the answer was we don't know. Yeah. Um, I think it's around 25, with the suspicion that the Turks are moving more. As we speak, yeah. 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 But it just there's a lot there's a lot of um, reference to those in analysis, um, and actually there's a there's a Ukrainian pop song just come out called Bayer Actor. Um, about how, how is the glory of the, the defender of the motherland. Um, but how how impactful actually are that many units? I just they're going to have some impacts, but Ukraine's a real big country, and therefore they can't they cannot be everywhere at once. Um, and things like the munitions they carry as well of the the MAMS, the, the MAM series, um, are fairly small yield primarily designed for, for precision strikes, they don't have the power to knock out a large convoy. Uh, they don't carry yeah. enough of them. So we saw them, we saw this used to great effect in in against Armenian forces in in, in the Nagorno-Karabakh campaign, taking out howitzers and isolated tanks. Uh, but they can only the barracks can only carry about four MAMLs, I believe. So limited magazine depth, you know, you're talking about potentially hundreds of Russian vehicles lined up. You just don't have the firepower to Take them all out. So useful for taking out high-value targets, mm. but when it comes to striking large Russian formations, you're going to need massed artillery, or you're going to need, you know, aircraft with large, you know, capacities to carry uh, ground-launched or uh, air-launched air-to-ground munitions. There's, there's no real two-way about it, really. Um, the drones just don't have enough firepower to, to effectively deal with this kind of stuff. A nuisance for sure, but probably not a, a warm-winning weapon for the Ukrainians. 
Any any closing thoughts on what we can kind of expect in the next few days? Um, I think on the ground, Russian forces are going to keep trying to push against Northwest Cube as they have been for the past few days. The south, uh, it's almost certain they're going to try and close the encirclement around Mariupol. I completely agree with Mariupol encirclement. I'm not so sure about Cube because I think that they now have a huge traffic jam that they're going to take a couple of days to actually sort out. Um, the, the big question to my mind is, are they going to try and encircle Kyiv and then fight a Western medieval siege of it? Or are they going to try and force their way in with an artillery barrage? Both of those are going to have uh, a lot going to be taken at all well by the international community because both necessarily involve significant civilian casualties. Um, and there, then we get into um, that intersection between politics and, and, and war fighting um, as to what is actually acceptable. Um, clearly, the Russians have got uh, a greater tolerance for inflicting civilian casualties than uh, the UK or US would, um, but there, there, there will be a, a, a figure that is unacceptable given the likely pushback from the rest of the world. I think we've already seen that, uh, partly from the explanations for, for why Russia didn't do what we expected them to in the early days, is I think there's an element of restraint. You know, the narrative of, of, of liberation of Ukraine rather than conquering, it doesn't do well to start, you know, wantingly destroying uh, Ukrainian, you know, villages and property, but on the pretext of liberation, it doesn't, you know. So there's a, there's a, there's a there, I think, I potentially, I, I think there's a clear element of they, they, deliberately restrained themselves, knowing it wasn't going to support their, their political narrative. Um, a lot of being made recently about, about the weapons being shipped over to from from, from many European countries um, to the Ukrainian armed, armed forces. Um, those will go a long way in keeping Ukrainian forces into the fight, because high-intensity conflicts tend to consume vast quantities of ammunition and weapons, either being fired or simply destroyed or lost. Um, and therefore, Ukraine has only a finite pool of, of weapons to dig into, uh, and their local industry is unlikely to be able to resupply them in an effective manner. Therefore, outside help will be welcome. Um, now, there also be, could be a point of how these weapons are being shipped in. We mostly think they'll be shipped in overland from Poland, but you still got to get them into, into the hands of, of the fighters. And if they're surrounded, for example, in Kiev or Mariupol, that's a difficult difficult way to actually get these weapons to them and resupply them. So. We'll see on that front um, how long the Ukrainians can, can hold out. Um, I think we all expect eventually a ceasefire of some kind to be declared. But um, uh, we'll see. Yeah, we'll see how long the, the Ukrainians are willing to hold out uh, on, on that kind of pressure. Uh, I think one last point is if Kherson has in fact fallen, uh, if it hasn't yet, I'm sure it will have done by tomorrow given the situation. Um, how easy it is for Russian forces to actually operate in and around that that town will, I think, dictate some of their future behaviour. Um, if it's still unmanageable, even having defeated the conventional forces there, um, then they may have to seriously rethink um, what they do with other cities. Yeah, it's going to be a test for the Ross Guard to see what they can do. Mm -hmm. But that's what we'll figure out this week, I think. Yeah. Great. Well, thank you uh, all for the, the insight and your thoughts. I think there's been some uh, great nuggets of information in there. And, um, the wrap up now. Thanks for joining us this week on the World of Intelligence. 
make sure to visit our website, chains.com slash podcast, where you can subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or Google Podcasts, so you'll never miss an episode.